One Week Season. One week season fam. Welcome to the week one edition of the OWS Angles podcast. I am your host. I'm your guest. I'm JM to win. Throw this baby on 1.5x speed and let's get started. You might be able to hear in my voice that I'm smiling. It feels great to be doing this again. I feel so energized heading into this season. I'm really excited for what's ahead. Big shout out to everybody on the team who has helped get everything up and running for this year and has put us all in position to, I think, be have the site ready, but also each of us as contributors be as well prepared for this site, for, for this season as we can possibly be. I think that in past seasons, that's been a struggle just because of how much it takes to get the site ready for the season and, and all the new stuff added and work through all the kinks on everything and have everything up and running. And so big shout out to Aaron, big shout out to the team of editors, Brian, Tom, Alec, big shout out to Dustin, Alex, Lex for doing the matchups research. Shout out to Poppy and Mike and Hilo for NFL Edge write up. Shout out to Zandemir for everything that he does. Larejo, Sonic, Landon joined the team this year to help with editing stuff and some research stuff. Shout out to Josh and Mike for reading the NFL Edge audio. And I'm probably still missing some people, but basically just a big shout out to everyone who has gotten everything ready for week one for us. And along the way, allowed us as content providers to obviously there's a lot of work for us to do as well, but to also have plenty of time for prep and being as ready for this season as we can be. So super excited about the energy I'm entering this season with and really excited for what should be a great season for the OWS fam. So we are going to, if you're new here, Angles Podcast, every week we basically kind of talk about the slate a little bit. Then we do a bottom-up build. And the idea behind the bottom-up build is we're going to build a, a roster using only 44K in salary cap, which forces us to start our rosters at the bottom. A lot of people make the mistake of starting their rosters at the top, deciding the expensive guys they want to play, and then trying to figure out how to fit those guys in by justifying the value that they're finding. But if we start from the bottom up, we're able to really find some of the pieces that are the stronger values. So a couple of years ago, two, three years ago, the bottom up build would just be really trying to find the best values and fitting them onto a roster. As we have continued continued to develop our discussions at OWS around strategy and around roster construction because again playing good plays doesn't win you tournaments playing good plays correctly wins you tournaments so as we have continued to develop our discussion around that side of DFS we've turned the bottom up build into not just who the best values are, but more an opportunity to talk through a lot of the best values on the slate, but for the roster itself to think more about the strategy behind roster construction. So in other words, if everybody on the slate were forced to play with a 44K salary cap, how would we build this roster from a strategy perspective to give us our clearest path to first place? We also every week have the bottom-up build contest for OWS members that will be posted, linked in the player grid and the scroll 
200 entries, 44K salary cap, prizes to first place. And then from there, we kind of talk about some final things on the slate, maybe some game environment things or other things that I'm seeing, and then we get you out of here. Try to keep this to uh, about an hour or a little bit less, and if you play it on 1.5x speed, you get it done in less time than that. So, first off, let's talk about week one. Week one is so unique. We talk about it every year in terms of the pricing discrepancies between what we'll see deeper into the season and kind of these rookies who are in these roles and guys whose prices were set before their roles were defined throughout training camp and all of that. But I think that one of the things that we can, you know, we're always wanting to advance our discussions. In fact, let me take a step to the side and say, I've talked about this recently on a couple podcasts, but I want to, doing some some offsite stuff and doing stuff with Pete Overzet this year. I have a, a podcast with Rotor Grinders this year. But whenever I hit on key things in those podcasts, because I know uh, like we have a ton of content on OWS. So it's not like you guys are listening to all of my podcasts throughout the week. So if I find something that I'm hitting on in another spot, I'm kind of reserving that, like setting it aside and making sure that we dive into it here as well, because I know that you guys are here every week. And one of the things I've talked about this week is I brought up something I said during best ball season with, you know, back in 2021, we were really the only site that was talking about drafting for week 17, which made that a significant edge just because not a lot of people were doing that. If you're not familiar with best ball, the way that the tournaments are set up is basically you play the first 14 weeks is to make it out of your 12 team league. And then that weeks 15, 16, 17 are playoff weeks, but you're, it's not like a regular fantasy league, right? You're competing against hundreds of rosters still as you progress through these playoff weeks. And so when you get to week 17, you still have to finish first place out of hundreds of rosters in order to get that $2 million first place prize. So it's not just about building a good roster or getting out of your league. It's about building also with week 17 in mind. But this year, everybody's caught on to that and everybody's talking about that. And what I said was, if everyone is sharing the same edge, it's no longer an edge. So yes, it's still important to be thinking about week 17, but that's no longer the edge. What's the edge this year? What is everybody going to be chasing next year that we can be doing now? So bringing this over to DFS, this concept of there are no edges left in DFS, that's because the things that worked three or four years ago, the things that were the edges three or four years ago, basically correlating and thinking about the fact that NFL scoring is correlated. And so I will build my rosters accordingly. Well, that's no longer an edge. It's still important. It's now just a foundational piece. So it's similar to seven or eight years ago when you could just be better than everybody else at finding the good plays, and that was an edge. Well, now you still have to find the good plays. That's still important, but that's not going to win you contests anymore. So bringing this back over to week one, I said, we'll step to the side for that. So we'll step back into the main discussion here. Bringing that back over to week one, we always talk about in week one the unpredictability and the fact that these guys are mispriced and the fact that we need to consider, right? I think it was two years ago, we had a week one where the winning scores were actually really low. And we'll get to that in a moment. But generally speaking, because there are so many underpriced players, the winning scores are going to be higher in week one than we'll see deeper in the season when salary gets really tight. 
And we talk about those things every year, and those things are important to think about in week one. But if we've been talking about them for four or five years, that means that we've had another four or five years for other people to start seeing these angles and thinking about these things. And so we have to recognize that just knowing these facts is no longer our week one edge. So what else makes week one unique? Well, for one thing, Mike brought this up in the for one, one of the questions in the Oracle, which again, it's week one, so everything's free week one. If you're not an Inner Circle member, you can find the Oracle in the scroll this week. But Mike brought up the fact, I guess I talked about this in the Angles email as well, that over-unders, that, that lines, that game totals are less efficient in week one than deeper into the season. So it's easy to say, well, this game has an over-under of only 45, or this team's implied team total is only X. But these are lines that we might look back on deeper into the season and be like, oh, wow, we were really wrong about this team, this team, this team, so on and so forth. Now, again, the reason that those lines end up being incorrect is because there's so much more uncertainty in week one. All these new coaching situations, new quarterbacks, new offenses, new defenses, really good players in new situations where we don't know how they're going to look there. Young players who maybe we thought were busts, but now are going to come back and perform really well this year. Guys who are going to take a leap this year. Guys who are going to take a step back this year. There's so much that's going to play out that four weeks from now, we'll look back on week one and it'll be like, I can't believe that we thought we knew all these things in week one. At this point, in my opinion, this is further compounded or edge here is further compounded by a couple of key factors. One, best ball has gotten more and more popular. Last year, we put out a free best ball draft pack for me in the DFS education marketplace. Completely free. Had a bunch of thoughts on drafts. It had a bunch of live drafts had a bunch of other things. And a little bit under 400 people came through and picked up that free course. This year, we had a paid best ball subscription. Now, it was only a dollar for this first year. But we had a paid best ball subscription, and a little bit under 400 of you came through and got that. Paid is a bigger commitment than free. And so again, we see that this we're seeing more interest in best ball. And next year, there's going to be more. And the next year, there's going to be more. And eventually, best ball is going to become more popular than DFS, quite frankly. But with this rise of best ball, we also have a rise of people who have spent a month, a month and a half, two months, even three months, pouring over these players, these new teams, these new situations, thinking through all of their thoughts on all these spots and coming to conclusions, coming to players that they think are going to do really well this year, players that they don't think are going to do well. And in best ball, you draft 18 rounds, you're going through over 200 players, you're getting down to the back of the roster, you're having to think through these fourth wide receivers or these young guys and how these rookies are going to perform. And there's so much edge if you get this rookie in the 120s or the 130s or 140s who ends up having a big season. So a lot, a much larger chunk of the DFS field has spent a much larger chunk of time thinking through all these situations and coming to firm conclusions about what they think about different situations. 
if we were entering week one five years ago, a lot of the times, uh, large chunks of the field are kind of catching up on all the new rookies and all the new situations as we're heading into week one. And so they have fewer preconceived ideas, fewer notions of certainty around these situations, which made it more valuable to kind of hunt for these uncertain young guys who might pop off. Whereas now, as more and more people get comfortable with their assessments of these players, it becomes more and more likely that ownership goes up on these guys. Another factor that I think is important, and I brought this up in the Oracle or in an NFL Edge game write-up, actually I think it was in the Oracle, that the rise of ETR is also compounding this because we know that Adam is going to be really sharp at finding the sharpest plays on a given slate. That's what makes him such a great cash game player is finding the guys who have the highest floor ceiling combination. And already the more and more popular ETR becomes, the more and more value we gain from that in tournaments because people have a tendency to then look at those sharp plays and and take that information and say, okay, these are the best plays. And then we play them in tournaments, which means that these, quote, sharpest plays, the chalk just becomes more and more heavily congregated on these plays, whereas we understand that there is still a range of uncertainty, a super sharp play in cash games isn't necessarily the best play in tournaments if this guy is now 25, 28, 30% owned. But this echo chamber is created, and we've talked about this in the past as well, but a lot of DFS content providers are not researchers, right? They're DFS players. So throughout the summer, they're playing MLB. They're catching up on NFL news right now. Then throughout September, they're playing MLB. Once we get into October, MLB is winding down, but NBA starting up. And these guys are firing off lineups every single day in different sports. And so how do they get their NFL information? Well, they get their NFL information from their most trusted sources. And a lot of time it's going to be Evan and Adam. So they're reading what Evan and Adam say. They are then taking these thoughts in as their own amplifying these thoughts to their audiences. And so we see the chalk become more and more chalky. And so again, it's going to be sharp chalk in terms of if we take this player in a vacuum and we just say this player compared to another player at his price point, who's the best play? So the field is going to get better and better and better at finding that. But that gives us more and more and more of an edge because a lot of times it's this guy at 5,500, this guy at 5,300, right? The guy at 5,500 is the sharpest play and he ends up at, let's say, 25% owned. The guy at 5,300 is the second or third sharpest play in this range and he ends up at 5% owned. So one guy is 5X more likely to have a big game than, or is 5X higher owned than the other guy, but it's probably only like, 5% more likely to have a big game. So there's so much EV that we gain over time by recognizing that and by not allowing ourselves to fall into that trap of being like, ooh, everybody likes this play. I must be wrong that I'm not on this guy. If I don't play this guy, I'm going to feel like an idiot if he goes off. Instead, we can kind of break things down and say, how was this chalk formed? And is it really as good as these ownership numbers are saying? Or is it, you know, better than the other plays? It's sharp chalk. But what does that mean when it's this much higher owned than these other spots? So I say all that because in week one, we have more unknowns than normal. 
we have more unknowns, and that's across the board. So whatever the sharp chalk is this week, it is fundamentally, inarguably, going to be less sharp than deeper into the season. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not going to pay off for the people who play it this week, right? But it means that if we played out this slate 100 times and then played out a week 11 slate 100 times, the super chalky sharpest plays in that week 11 slate would outperform the super chalky high-owned week one plays. And yet, with all that, Adam is still going to find a really sharp pool of players and people are going to take those thoughts and carry them over to tournaments. And that sharp pool of players is going to be less predictable this week than in other weeks. So I think that those are some important factors to think about this week. And what that really puts us in a position of is thinking not so much what are the values on the unknowns, but where are the values on the knowns? Where are the values where we can say, yeah, we actually do know what this guy's role is, and we actually do know how he can perform in this role. So with that, let's get to this week's bottom-up build. So this is an interesting bottom-up build this week in that some of these guys are not necessarily favorite plays of mine. If I'm identifying the sharpest chalk, the sharpest plays, I'm identifying the same plays that Adam's going to be identifying. I'm identifying the same plays that the field is going to end up on. But again, on this particular week, we also want to think about what's our edge, what's our advantage, what makes us the most money over time. And in a lot of these spaces, it's it's potentially going to be not betting on what everybody else is betting on because we can then say, if we go layers deeper, these bets feel comfortable, but they're carrying more uncertainty than normal. And if that means that we're getting higher certainty plays at much lower ownership, that's the direction that we want to go. With that said, it doesn't mean that you can't play some of these lower owned guys. As we talk about all these uh, lower priced guys who you know, are maybe rookies or in uncertain situations and are going to come with high ownership, it doesn't mean that you can't play those guys. As we often talk about, you just have to push a, a two, three buttons differently than everybody else. Maybe a totally different salary structure than the field. Maybe a stack that just completely sets you apart. A stack that would be your tournament winner if it hits and that if it hits it's going to be a stack that basically nobody else has so now you're separating from the field because again you're saying this is a stack that this could be my combines for 90 points from these three players type of stack and nobody else will have this stack well now if that hits if that scenario hits you're way ahead of the field and so then you can say look i can play who i want at other spots i don't have to worry as much about things so using that uh, as kind of an example uh, i'm potentially going to have uh, Jahan dotson on my main build this week I like him. He's 3,400. He's the kind of guy who can put up 30 points in a game because he can catch the ball anywhere on the field and score. And unlike a Rondell Moore, Wondell Robinson, Kadarius Toney, 
who, you know, their roles could be different than I'm expecting, but we could see those guys see a lot more passes at the line of scrimmage and kind of the Rondell Moore role from last year where it's like, hey, let's get him the ball and let him try to break one, which is great if they break one, but, you know, your floor is really low if they don't. Like, Jahan Dotson's going to be running routes down the field. He should see six to eight targets and he could see some downfield throws. He could break some big gains and he could he could end up being popular. Well, based on what I'm doing elsewhere on my roster, I probably don't have to worry about that. If I like him, I can play him. And so you can play some of these guys. You just have to be thinking about how they fit onto your roster as a whole. Okay, so let's take a look at this bottom-up build. I think that on this week's podcast, we won't really spend a ton of time touching on the different options for value because we're hitting on that kind of everywhere this week. That's always one of the main themes of week one. So I guess running through things just really quickly at the wide receiver position, which is where we have the most options for guys who are kind of just underpriced in potentially really good roles. And so going under that 5K mark on DraftKings where you go above 5K, like that 5K to 6K range, it's beautiful in there in terms of what you can find (laughs) that should be priced much higher deeper into the season. But the temptation is to go below 5K and look at some of these guys down here. And so I, I will note Real quickly, that Wondell Robinson, I, I like his role. I think he's going to be central to this Giants offense. Same thing with Kadarius Tony. He's 4,100. Rondell Moore is in this shootout with Arizona and Kansas City. He's probably going to be popular because DeAndre Hopkins is out and Ertz is banged up. And we're assuming that Rondell Moore will end up playing, but uh, he'll probably be popular. But, you know, he he's perfectly fine to justify in this game environment as a guy who's on the field. Every snap, if you like him, he's fine to play as long as you're playing him intelligently and differently on your roster. George Pickens is 4,100, and you guys know I love Deontay Johnson. We've been Deontay Johnson truthers since he was 4,200, but would it shock us if by week five or eight or whatever it is, if George Pickens is the best wide receiver on the Steelers. Would it shock us if he's priced at 5,500 to 6K? So that's a guy that you can consider. Actually, on that note too, especially if Deontay Johnson does end up missing this game with his shoulder issue, people are all going to go to George Pickens because we've had this offseason hype around him and they're not going to go to Chase Claypool. Najee Harris is very clearly underpriced on this slate. George Pickens is a sexy guy to pull the trigger on. So Chase Claypool not only would have plenty of upside, but would also be direct leverage off two guys who would be higher owned than him. So that's another guy to keep in mind just from a strategy perspective. I mentioned Jahan Dotson at 3,400. If I were in large field play, I wouldn't mind taking a shot on some of these Colts guys. Paris Campbell is 3,300. I believe Alec Alec Pierce is 3,900. And I guess we are kind of hitting on, <laughs> hitting on these guys like we typically would. Um, what's cool about these guys is I kind of I came into this week thinking, well, everybody's going to love Jonathan Taylor. Came into this week. I came into this month. We've had pricing up forever, but I came into this week thinking everyone's going to love Jonathan Taylor. Michael Pittman's going to be great leverage off of him because everyone will say, "Oh, smash game for Jonathan Taylor." The Colts are going to run the ball, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, Michael Pittman is a bit of a DFS darling 
You guys love Michael Pittman. The, the DFS community adores Michael Pittman. And then we've had enough reports about this. Colts are going to pass more this year than in the past. That It seems like people are really ready to load up on Michael Pittman this week. So my, my initial thought was like, hey, Pittman will probably, probably be like 5% owned and Jonathan Taylor 20% owned. And you can play Pittman as leverage. Leverage meaning if you're, if you're kind of new here and new to these types of discussions, leverage basically meaning not only do I get points if – if Michael Pittman does well, get points at low ownership. But Michael Pittman having a big game likely comes from him scoring multiple touchdowns, which directly takes away from Jonathan Taylor having a big game because there's not enough touchdowns to go around. And that's what Jonathan Taylor needs in order to have a spiked week. So Michael, so Michael Pittman becomes not just a play who's good in a vacuum in that situation because he's low owned, but also a play who, if he gets points, he's pushing your roster up. And let's say Jonathan Taylor's 20% owned. He's hurting 20% of the field at the same time. Anytime we can find those leverage spots where our guy not only is is helped by getting points, but is also hurting a popular player, then that's going to put us in good position. But again, as we're getting closer into week one, it doesn't look like Michael Pittman's going to be leverage at all. It looks like Michael Pittman is likely to be somewhat popular, which means that Paris Campbell and Alec Pierce become the leverage off of both of those guys. Uh, I would reserve those guys for large field play. I think that Paris Campbell will have what, two games this year where he randomly sees eight, nine, 10, 11 targets. But, and you guys know I love Paris Campbell too, but I just don't think he's that central to this offense anymore at this point because if you're planning this offense, you're basically having to have a contingency plan for, well, what if Paris Campbell is not around for the entire season? So there's been nothing that they're designing that has him as a central component because there just wouldn't be intelligent to do that. So more often than not, Paris Campbell is going to see these crossing routes in the short and intermediate area. And he'll have these, you know, three catches, five, six target games, these three catches for 25 yards, four catches for 50 yards, stuff in that range. And uh, every once in a while, I'll spike above that. Alec Pierce is a really nice multi-touchdown guy. He is, he, he doesn't create that much separation. He has plenty of time to develop into a guy who creates more separation. But even in college, where coverage is a lot less sticky, he didn't create a ton of separation, but he'll catch anything thrown his way in tight coverage, which is a tremendous skill set to have in the red zone. And so he's going to have, you know, be a candidate for multi-touchdown games all season. So if I were in large field play, he becomes very interesting because Alec Pierce scoring two touchdowns at low ownership is also hurting high Michael Pittman ownership, high Jonathan Taylor ownership. And you would assume that Pittman and Taylor won't be on a lot of rosters together, which is important because let's say that Taylor is 20% owned and Pittman is 20% owned. That's Alec Pierce's leverage off of essentially 35 to 40% of the field right there. A double touchdown game from Alec Pierce isn't just hurting 20% of rosters, it's hurting 20% and 20%, right? And so uh, that's a guy I would be thinking about in large field play, but not a guy that I would be going to in smaller field contests. There are other values, probably some guys that I've touched on throughout the week and probably some guys that you're thinking of, but uh, that's kind of the one, those are kind of the ones that stand out to me from what I've been looking at throughout the week.
So with that, let us get to the bottom-up build. One of these stats I like to lean on in week one is obviously we can't use this for young players or guys who are in completely new roles. Guys like Nico Collins. I, oh, Nate, I like Nico Collins this week too. I think he's very interesting as a guy who legitimately will have some double-digit target games this year, and we can't really predict when those will be. We know that the Colts kind of filter targets in the middle of the field, try to prevent big plays. So the chances of Nico Collins spiking aren't that great. But again, especially in larger field play, and he works well with saying Alec Pierce, and now you have something that is legitimately so different from what anybody else has that you can start feeling more comfortable just making plays that you like in other spots. And you're not risking a lot of salary in order to do it either. And these... Like, Pierce and, and Collins could easily combine for 45 to 50 points if things play out the right way. That's not their median range of projection. Their median range of projection is kind of disappointing you. They're, they're not the most underpriced guys down below 5K. But there are very clear scenarios in which they end up as one of these nice pairings. It wouldn't surprise me if some of you listen to this and then you're like, ah, I wouldn't have thought of Nico and, and Pierce. And then you throw that onto a few large field rosters and that ends up being like one of the things that hits this week, right? It's going to be, there are going to be points in the season where Pierce is a really nice cheap piece. There are going to be points in the season where Nico Collins is a really nice cheap piece. But on these guys who aren't young and aren't in new roles and aren't kind of ascending, the guys who we have a track record of them, one of the stats that I like to lean on, it's a very simple metric, is just what was this guy's point per uh, uh, per game production last year? What was this player's per game production last year? How does that compare to their week one price? So we always talk about point per dollar production, right? And we'll talk about, you know, hey, this guy's priced at 20K, at, at 8K, but he averages 20 points per game. You know, that's a solid two and a half point per dollar production as his average, and that's better than the guys around him. And, and so when we have a large sample size, like a full season from, from 2021 that we can look at and say, hey, this guy averaged this per game, and compared to his week one price, that's X point, uh, point per dollar production per game. Am I explaining that? Well, this has been a, a very long month um, of, of work and we're wrapping things up today, but I think you get what I'm saying, right? Week one salary compared to 2021 per game production. Who is the most underpriced based on that very simple metric? Well, the single most underpriced quarterback on DraftKings by this metric is Kirk Cousins. The second most underpriced wide receiver by this metric is Adam Thielen. Only Debo Samuel has a lower price in week one compared to his 2021 production than Adam Thielen has. I said in the Oracle, or maybe, yeah, I was in the Oracle, I said, did this guy die in the offseason? Thielen had only two games out of 13 last year where he was priced below 6,600. And we're entering into week one, and he's 5,400. In a game that has the fourth highest over-under and has the third best chance of being a shootout on an offense where his teammate 
became a top five pick in best ball drafts and season long drafts this year, not based on past production, but based on our projection of the of this offense looking better this year and passing the ball more this year. And we take all of that into account and we have Adam Thielen at the healthiest and freshest he's going to be all season because it's week one and he's 5,400. So I started out this roster with Cousins and Thielen and then kept building from there. It's a, it's a pairing that I like. I like it in small field play. I like it in large field play. It's a, it's a sharp play, right? You're taking a game that should have points scored, that has a chance to be a shootout, and you are getting guys who are great values based on the production they're capable of, based on their ceilings and based on their price tags. And they shouldn't be super highly owned. More importantly, Justin Jefferson probably will grab a decent amount of ownership. And Dalvin Cook could easily grab a decent amount of ownership. So you get an opportunity to Again, leverage, not just gain points if these guys hit, but also take away points from guys who are going to be a little bit more popular. As I went to build out this roster, one of the things I wanted to avoid was the popular plays under 5K because of all of the factors that we talked about. And especially because we're talking about building this roster for a contest where everyone has a 44K salary cap. Well, where everyone has a 44K salary cap, everyone is going to be thinking about the Wondell Robinsons and the George Pickens and the Jahan Dotsons and the Kadarius Tonys and so on and so forth. Now, if you're listening to the Angles podcast and then you're building for our actual bottom-up build, then you can think about, well, everyone listened to the Angles podcast and now everyone's a little bit less likely to play these cheaper guys. And so maybe it makes a little bit more sense in that particular contest to play these cheaper guys. But for this roster, I wanted to build without going down to those guys, because again, as soon as I go down to those guys, I'm just kind of doing the same thing as everybody else. And I'm not giving myself a clear path to first place. So as I went through this build, it wasn't really coming together with Thielen. So in spite of the fact that Thielen is one of the more underpriced players on the slate, is a guy I really like, is kind of where I was starting this roster originally, I had to decouple myself from that play and basically say, there are other sharp ways to do this. I don't need to be married to one particular way to do this. And I think that this is a, an important lesson to learn as well. I was doing my um, my Mastiff drafts for Underdog, which is the $2,500 entry and they're uh, six 12-team leagues. And it's a slow draft where you've got, you know, hours for each pick. And I was like four picks in and I called up Mike to bounce some ideas off of him. And you guys know how much I love Russell Wilson, especially this year when he's in this new offense, he gets to kind of run the show. And so I called Mike. I was four picks into my first Mastiff draft to kind of bounce some ideas off of him. And the one thing I was struggling with was Russell Wilson didn't necessarily fit on the roster that I was trying to build, but I wanted to get Russell Wilson, right? I had him on 25% of my best ball mania rosters. And so it's like, well, now I'm like, basically doubling my my entry fees for the year on this one contest and then I don't I don't get Russ right like now my investment in Russ gets almost cut in half if I don't grab him and as we were talking Mike was like you know 
Russ probably doesn't make the most sense for this roster. And it was something that I've been thinking and thinking and thinking. And it took him saying that to be like, yeah, I don't need to worry about the individual player. I need to worry about the roster. I need to worry about what I'm actually building here and how I'm thinking through this. And so that's sometimes hard for us to do when we start our roster in a certain place and we have a player that we really like. But sometimes we have to recognize, again, DFS is not about predicting what what we think is going to happen so much as it's about putting good plays onto better built rosters. So from there, I ended up moving down to Irv Smith Jr. at the tight end position. And this is going to set the table for a lot of the picks that we're going to be making after this. We'll get to that in a moment. As you might imagine, if you've you've seen my Twitter timeline in the offseason, this roster not only started with Cousins and Thielen, but Cousins, Thielen, and Lazard. So I'm recording this on Wednesday. We don't know yet if Lazard is going to play this week. But I was going to put him on there kind of assuming that he was going to play and and say, look, if he's playing, this is how I would build this roster. But again, it didn't really make that much sense to dedicate that salary to those guys. So what I ended up doing is not just going down to Irv Smith, but also going down to Randall Cobb. So why Randall Cobb? Well, Randall Cobb, it's again, similar to Thielen. It's week one. He's the healthiest he's going to be. He's going to be on the field plenty, and he's going to see targets, and nobody ever wants to play Randall Cobb. Randall Cobb is not a threat for a massive yardage game, especially at this point in his career. But what he is always a threat for is a multi-touchdown game. In fact, he scored five touchdowns last season, and four of them came in two different games. Four of them came in multi-touchdown games. He only played 12 games, so that's two out of 12 games that he scored multiple touchdowns. What's interesting is I actually had a week last year, one of my better weekends last season, where I had a Randall Cobb-Adam Thielen pairing on my my main roster. And again, nobody wants to play those guys. Those were the main pieces that set my roster apart. Both of them scored multiple touchdowns and ended up being like nice contributing pieces for my roster. In this case... I'm basically saying, let me build around one of these top games, a game that I really like, a game that I think will certainly have points and could shoot out. And let me bet on the touchdowns coming from different places than everybody else would expect. Let me expect that if Alan Lazard is out, Romeo Dobbs is going to be the popular guy on the Packers or A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones are going to be the popular guys on the Packers. Let me guess that the popular guys on the Vikings are going to be Justin Jefferson and possibly Dalvin Cook. And so now I get these guys in other spots that if the touchdowns flow to them, I'm hurting a huge chunk of the field all at once. And I'm getting these points over onto my roster. Instead, I'm taking away from these other rosters and I'm adding these points on my roster and not many other rosters because not many other people would have this parent. So that becomes my starting point for this roster. Kirk Cousins, Irv Smith, and Randall Cobb. Now, I've talked this week in the NFL Edge, and I'll probably end up hitting on this in the scroll as well, that by the numbers, mathematically, logically, it makes the most sense to pay up at tight end this week. And then here's why. When we scrape around on these 3K tight ends, these 3,500 tight ends, these 4K tight ends, whatever it is, 
a lot of times it's because we're deeper into the season and we're saying, okay, if one of these high-priced tight ends only has, if, if all of these high-priced tight ends only have like 14 to 16 points and I get on the cheap guy who gets me, they don't need a blow-up game. They just need 10, 11, 12 points. Well, now I'm still pretty much in line with the people who paid up at tight end but I've saved 3K in salary that I can use somewhere else. And that's why we find some value on cheap tight ends as we get deeper into the season. But this being week one, there are much better values at, say, wide receiver than at tight end. In other words, if Wondell Robinson hits, if Jahan Dotson hits, if Kadarius Toney hits, if George Pickens hits, their ceiling is so much higher than the ceiling on if Brevin Jordan hits or if Hayden Hurst hits. And so on a week like this, you could basically say, well, yeah, it, it's nice to differentiate by going down at tight end. But if I'm going to do that, like, what's my ceiling? How many points am I really getting? What's the edge here compared to if somebody else goes down, if somebody else goes up at tight end and they end up getting 25 points, right? Well, I'm now I'm so far behind at this one position. If they end up putting up 30 points, I'm so far behind at this one position. So if I'm playing Irv Smith, and this is very important, if I'm playing Irv Smith, I don't want to play him in a vacuum. I also want to say Irv Smith is probably not putting up a 25-point game. Irv Smith really helping my roster is maybe 15, 16, 18 points. Because of that, I am so far behind the field if Mark Andrews ends up putting up a 35 to 40 point game, if Travis Kelsey ends up putting up a 35 to 40 point game, these guys won't be as high owned in a, in a 44K salary cap contest. But let's just talk general DFS strategy and theory that we can apply to week one in that People are going to have those tight ends. Those tight ends are going to be highly owned. So if they hit and we're on the cheap guys, we're in a lot of trouble because we have a large chunk of the field that has just moved far ahead of us. So if we play one of these cheap guys, ideally, we recognize, look, I don't just need Herb Smith to put up a 12 to 15 point game. I also need Mark Andrews and Travis Kelsey to put up sub 20 point games. Do I think that the Ravens are just going to face plant in, in this game against the Jets? Do I think that Kansas City is just going to face plant in week one and Kelsey has a kind of a mediocre game and that's because Kansas City has a mediocre game? Or do I think it's because Kelsey has a mediocre game and somebody else on Kansas City is grabbing those points instead? It's because I think that the Ravens are still having a good game and somebody else is grabbing those points instead of Mark Andrews. So basically, you take this cheap tight end and then you don't just leave it at that, but you can also say, because I'm taking this cheap tight end, my clearest path to first place is now Travis Kelsey and Mark Andrews having mediocre games. If Travis Kelsey and Mark Andrews have mediocre games, what then? Well, then I probably want the guys on their teams who are benefiting from them having mediocre games. So the next two guys I put on this roster are Rashad Bateman and Juju Smith-Schuster. And you might look at this roster and it's like, 
oh yeah, Juju is a one-off and we're going to get to actually a pairing for Rashad Bateman, but Juju is a one-off and it doesn't relate in any way to Irv Smith. But the fact of the matter is that Juju is tied in directly to the Irv Smith play because I'm always wanting to think about what is my clearest path to first place? Now that I have Irv Smith on my roster, he locked in. Well, now my clearest path to first place is these high-priced tight ends coming in below expectations. And if these high-priced tight ends come in below expectations, I can gain extra leverage on that. I can double up on that bet. I'm already making that bet. With my Irv Smith roster, I'm already making a bet that Travis Kelsey doesn't pop off for a big game. So if I'm going to make that bet, I might as well take advantage of the benefits of that bet by adding one of these Kansas City pass catchers who could take those points that Travis Kelsey is not getting. So this roster has made a lot of my decisions for me already. I have Kirk Cousins, Irv Smith, Randall Cobb, Juju Smith-Schuster, and Rashad Bateman. One of the more underpriced players on the week one slate, in my opinion, one of the guys I really, really like this week from a floor ceiling standpoint is Elijah Moore. Elijah Moore with Joe Flacco. That's an upgrade for him. It's a game where we should expect the Ravens to be ahead. As I'm saying this, I'm realizing that this one is so obvious that it feels like one of those ones that's just going to fall apart on Sunday. But Where we're at right now, when we haven't seen the games yet, is Flacco has looked great in camp. Flacco, I mentioned this uh, in the NFL Edge, but, you know, we have this tendency to think of Flacco as not elite, right? The, The jokes are easy to make with Flacco. But because of that, when he's coming in, we think of him as a backup. Realistically, though, there are at least six to eight teams, maybe more, that would improve their short-term quarterback situation if Flacco were their starter. Now, Flacco is not their starter because they have a young guy that they're wanting to develop. The Jets are a perfect example. They have a young guy they're wanting to develop. They're wanting him to become like their ceiling. The ceiling on Zach Wilson two years from now is higher than the ceiling on Joe Flacco. The Jets aren't winning a Super Bowl this year. So you keep starting Zach Wilson. You keep letting him develop and you see what happens between now and then. And there are a lot of teams that are in that situation with young quarterbacks right now, but Flacco in the short term, if he stepped in for one game, would be an upgrade on any of those guys, right? This is not late career Matt Schaub. This is still a a decent, a solid NFL quarterback. He will be able to get the ball to Elijah Moore, and the Jets should be passing in this one. Elijah Moore is only 5,100. And again, We always talk about targeting 200-point scores. What if we target 250-point scores? Well, what do we need then? We need 5X from our players. Elijah Moore is one of these guys at 5,100 who could get you 25 points, who could get you 30 points. He can get you that 5X or 6X and be a tournament separator. In fact, last year, his last one, two, three, four, five games, he had a game with 27 points, a game with 32 points, a game with 20 points. And he's priced at 5,100, again, with an upgrade at quarterback for this week in a matchup where they should be passing. He also, obviously, pairs really well with Rashad Bateman. So that was kind of like an easy auto play for me on this roster because I already really like Elijah Moore. I'm certainly going, I'll probably have three or four rosters in play this weekend on DraftKings. I will definitely have Elijah Moore on at least one of those rosters. He's a guy that I'm comfortable placing a solo bet on. I don't need him correlated, but 
this is great, right? On this roster, basically, I already had Elijah Moore set aside as a guy I like, a guy I'm probably playing somewhat this week. And now I have this Rashad Bateman play that created itself from me playing Irv Smith and Rashad Bateman being the deeper levels of leverage there. And then I can just correlate that with Elijah Moore and basically say, look, if Rashad Bateman's hitting for a tournament winning game, then that means that many more points for the Ravens. That means that many more passes for the Jets and that much higher likelihood that Elijah Moore ends up hitting the game. I need him to hit. These next three picks kind of came in together. So I don't know what order I got them in on this roster. I was playing around with a lot of different things at running back and I was playing around with different running back defense special teams pairing. I played around with the Derek Henry and Titans defense special teams pairing on this roster in order to see if it would fit. I played around with the Joe Mixon and Bengals pairing, which would be very different. You know, if you're in a a 200-person contest with a 44K salary cap, you would probably be the only person with Mixon and the Bengals defense. In fact, if you're in a 200-entry contest with the full salary cap, you would probably be the only person with the Joe Mixon and Bengals defense pairing. Makes a ton of sense. Bengals had a lot of sacks last year. Bengals are going to be facing Mitch Trubisky, who might be without Deontay Johnson. They still have a bad offensive line in Pittsburgh. And the Bengals should control this game. And Mixon could end up getting one of his monster games. He could end up putting up two or three touchdowns. He could end up scoring 30 plus points. And you pair him with the Bengals defense, it comes together really nicely. In fact, one of Mixon's biggest games last season, I believe, came in a game where Cincinnati's defense had 19 points of their own. So the pairing works out really nicely. It's it's nicely correlated, especially in that spot. But I wasn't able to get any of those to fit in here. And what I ended up with was, and this is really interesting because on a On a bottom-up build, you're typically going to be looking for the cheaper defenses, right? You don't want to spend already in that when you have 50K in salary cap. If you can find a 2K defense that you feel comfortable with, you don't really want to go up to the 4K defense. That's essentially 4% of your salary cap that you're eating up just jumping from one unpredictable defense to another. In a bottom-up build where we have a 44K salary cap, that's now... Four and a half percent of your salary cap that you're eating up, jumping from one defense special teams to another. It's easy to look at this roster and be like, why would I jump up to a top defense when I could spend that salary on moving up from Randall Cobb, right? Like that's the easy way to think about these things. But when we're thinking about rosters as a whole, doing things that are different is positive for us. In fact, if we just look at this slate mathematically, and some of you are going to do this in your bottom-up build this week, and it's it's also sharp, right? But if we just look at this slate mathematically, the sharpest thing to do on this would be, how do I fit in some of these running backs who could go for 40 points? How do I fit in Christian McCaffrey, Derrick Henry, if you want Jonathan Taylor? How do I fit in some of these guys? Well, oh, look, over here, there's all these 3K wide receivers. The thing is, that's what most people will be doing, right? Most people will have the Jahan Dotson, George Pickens, Wondell Robinson roster with a couple of high-priced running backs. And so finding the opportunity to say, look, I might be giving up a little bit in terms of projections here, but what I'm doing is playing to the fact that I'm giving up a little bit in terms of projections, but gaining a lot in terms of how different my roster is from everybody else's. So that if the logical thing doesn't happen, I'm now in way better shape than everybody else because everybody else is going to approach things this way. I'm approaching things differently and I just need 
one week to work out all season where, hey, my different approach, where the chalk breaks down and my different approach hits and I'm now my whole season's made just from that that one event occurring. So we always want to put ourselves in that situation. Your your whole season is not made if you get things right on the chalk build structure, right? You still have a lot of work to do to beat everybody else. And so uh, in this roster, I ended up going with Elijah Mitchell and the 49ers defense. By that same metric that we were talking about earlier, what was a player's per game production last year compared to their week one price? Well, by that metric, Elijah Mitchell is, Eli Mitchell, I guess, is what we'll call him. Eli Mitchell is the single most underpriced running back on the DraftKings slate, just ahead of Derrick Henry. Elijah, Elijah Mitchell, Eli Mitchell, <laughs> 5,400. As a favorite against a Bears defense that's not very good, and then pair him with the 49ers defense again, further differentiation on this roster and just kind of sets us apart and gives us a nice correlated bet where you could easily see Eli Mitchell going for 27 points and the 49ers defense going for 15 points and nobody else or very few other rosters having this pairing and you move ahead of the field. And then the last one I went to was if I think that these cheaper wide receivers are going to be popular. If I think that Jahan Dotson is going to be popular, if I think that people are going to be scraping around for these, these wideouts in this range, how can I maybe benefit from that on my roster? How can I maybe benefit from everybody having so much certainty heading into week one? And because they have so much certainty on these spots that feel really comfortable because of the value that they're finding, they're that much less likely to go to the spots that feel icky. They're that much less likely to go to the spots that feel uncomfortable. You know who feels uncomfortable right now is Antonio Gibson. But guess what? He's priced at 5,800 and Brian Robinson got shot in the leg. And Antonio Gibson has the same role right now that he had last year. And he's playing the Jags and he's 5,800 and people aren't going to want to play him and people are going to be playing this game in other ways. People are going to be playing this game with Christian Kirk, with Jahan Dotson, with maybe some of the other pass catchers on these offenses and not taking Antonio Gibson. In fact, I would I would imagine that Travis Etienne is going to be popular this week, especially if James Robinson is going to be limited or if James Robinson, especially if James Robinson isn't going to play. And so again, that just further reinforces that nobody's going to have Antonio Gibson. So that gives us the final roster in order of how it's listed on DraftKings. Kirk Cousins, Antonio Gibson, Eli Mitchell, Rashad Bateman, Elijah Moore, Randall Cobb, Irv Smith, Juju Smith-Schuster, and the 49ers defense. Now, I want to note that if we're talking about a 200-entry contest, I pushed more buttons than I would need to push. And what I mean by that is Kirk Cousins, Irv Smith, and Randall Cobb. If I'm in a 200-entry contest, I'm the only person that has that roster. Now, that roster, if it hits, doesn't just shoot me to first place. If you're the only person who has a high-priced stack, so let's say you took a high-priced stack and you just built it in like a unique way and that hits, right, to where you're getting 5x your high-priced players, you're keeping yourself on a 250-plus point pace with 20K of your salary cap, 
Well, now, you know, if you get a hundred points from three guys, now you literally don't have to do anything different if you're the only person who has that stack, especially in smaller contests. If I get five X from Cousins and Irv Smith and Cobb, that's an advantage, but it's not like, oh, I'm winning this tournament now, right? You still have to do a few other things different, but recognize that you're going to be the only person with Cousins, Cobb, and Irv Smith. And this is why we think through all the steps of our roster, because it allows us to make sharp decisions at each new step. So at this step in the build, I'm already very differentiated. I have to recognize that this pairing hitting doesn't actually hit for enough raw points that I'm suddenly so far ahead of the field. I mean, if this pairing, if this three-player pairing hits for 5x their salary and keeps me on a 250-point pace, that's still just a little bit over 60 points, right? So it's not like I'm so far ahead, but I got 60 points from really cheap salary, and now I am certainly ahead in that regard. And it's, it's a block of points that other people aren't getting. So again, recognize like where you get, like how much of an edge you gain based on how many points you would be getting if the scenario played out. How big of your, like what percentage of your salary cap are you suddenly like, ooh, I'm on a 250 point pace with with 40% of my salary cap. You know, if you have a, a 20K three player block that goes for hundred points, that's 40% of your salary cap that you've already kept yourself on that 250 point pace for. And again, in, in that case, if it's very different from what other people have, you don't really need to worry too much, especially if you're under a thousand entries in your contest, under 2000 entries in your contest, you can assume that you're pretty far ahead of the field just with that. And then you can take your favorite plays from there. We're not quite at that point with Cousins, Cobb and Irv Smith. But then once we throw in the next layers of differentiation where we have Rashad Bateman, where we have Juju, where these guys are are correlated to our Irv Smith bet, but where 99% of the field would never recognize that these guys are correlated to the Irv Smith bet, you end up separating yourself even more, right? You say, if this Irv Smith bet is really working out, it's probably working out this way. And from that point, you could probably play whatever you wanted, especially in a 200 entry contest. Obviously, Elijah Moore was a play whoever I wanted play. But we would have enough salary left over that you could essentially go, let's say you liked Elijah Mitchell, Eli Mitchell, as much as I like him this week. And you don't have to pair him with the 49ers defense at that point. You can go down to the Dolphins defense at 2,600. You can go down to the Washington defense at 2,500. And now instead of playing Antonio Gibson, you actually can get up to... Joe Mixon. You actually could, you'd be pretty close to getting up to Alvin Kamara if you wanted to then touch around a couple other things on this roster. So you don't have to, at this point in my build, I I put in the Eli Mitchell with the 49ers pairing because I had been messing around with Antonio Gibson and the Washington defense. I'd messed around with Mixon and the Bengals defense. And I wanted to stick with, for, for illustration purposes, one of these combos at running back. But it's also important to highlight that once we got to this point, these first six spots filled in, we could look at that roster and say, I, I'm, you know what, I can basically do whatever I want the rest of the way on this roster. And that's running back, running back, and defense special teams. 
and you can kind of take the cheapest guy that you really like, the cheapest defense that you really like, and the most expensive running back that you could fit in from there. So you don't have to press as many buttons as I pressed on this one. I think that's important to highlight because, again, we're also always wanting to talk about how we use this type of roster construction technique and thought processes to our advantage in large field play and or in uh, in standard play with 50K salary cap, whether that's large field play or small field play. And uh, so, yeah, recognize that there's a point in your roster where it's like, oh, look, I've done what I need to do with this roster. Now I can fill it in with just whatever I like from there. With that, that's the end of our first Angles podcast of the season. As always, uh, I'm so grateful to you guys for hanging out. So grateful for you guys being on the site and for what's ahead. Let's have some fun this weekend. Let's have some fun this year. I will see you on the site throughout the weekend. I will see you at the top of the leaderboards. Week one. <laughs>